Well, good morning, Hellas Church uh, and guests who are tuning in this morning to worship with us. We're so glad that you've devoted your time and your attention to this moment. My name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as a pastor of our faith family, and it is my joy to lead us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those and find your way to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 here in a moment, but before we do that, let me voice a prayer over our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. We thank you for how your word bears witness to the work of your son that shows us all sorts of aspects and implications that flow from the sufferings and the glory of Jesus. And I pray that as we read and study your Bible, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see him in its pages and that our hearts would grow in obsession with Christ, that our faith would be fixed upon him in every moment of every day. And so God, would you please enrich our study of your word this morning for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark and Jesse Hevelin are members of our faith family, and they are plugged into the Edmonds expression of our church, and they have some incredible kids. They're twins, James and Sasha. They have started a little business titled uh, Kung Pao Cookie Dough, and they are making and selling all kinds of cookie dough. Well, my family grabbed some, and when we got ready to bake our first batch, our kids' excitement began to grow. You could just see it in their eyes, and when we put the cookie dough in the oven, and our kids were had a eager expectation to see how they were going to turn out and to taste the final product. And so they, their patients just went on vacation as they came in and out of the kitchen, constantly asking us, are they done yet? Are they done yet? Are they done yet? Eventually they grew tired of moving back and forth between the living room and the kitchen. So they came in and they just sat in front of the oven and they turned on the internal light and they just watched the cookies bake. They fixed their gaze on what was happening because that's what they wanted to see. And my question for you this morning is, have you ever longed to see something? Have you ever longed to see something so badly that you became tunnel visioned and blocked everything else out and nothing else could interfere with your attention or to draw your gaze from that which you long to see? When we long to see something, we will devote our time, our energy, our resources towards catching a glimpse of it. We will do crazy things at times to see what we long to see. For example, there are some who long to see the Star Wars movies when they reappeared in the theaters. And so they begin to sleep at ticket offices and camp out at movie theaters because they wanted to be the first ones through the door and lay their eyes upon the films that had just recently come out. There are some who long to see their newborn grandchildren. When Kim gave birth to Delaney and we told my parents that she was in labor, they jumped in their car immediately and they drove nonstop 12 hours to reach us so that they could put their eyes upon this newborn child. There are some who long to see the beauty of a meteor shower. And so that longing will cause them to hike up a mountain and to lay out a blanket and to sit for hours with their eyes fixed upon the skies, waiting to see the glorious display of that media shower. Well, there's an interesting phrase at the end of verse 12, this, this last phrase that wraps up this powerful introduction to Peter's 
epistle and you come to the end of verse 12 and there's this wonderful phrase that says, angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. That word long is a word that carries strong connotations of passion. It carries strong connotations of obsession. What Peter is saying is that there is something that the angels are passionately obsessing over, that they are passionately obsessed with fixing their gaze upon certain things. But the question is, what are those things? What is it that angels long to see? Well, if you read the passage in reverse, you're going to see you're going to see what they long to see because there are some words that pop up as you work your way back through the passage in verse 12. You find the word gospel referring to the good news of Jesus. You keep moving to verse 11 and there's the phrase, the sufferings and the glories of Christ. You get to verse 10 and you find the terms grace and salvation. And you begin to discover that the highest beings in heaven, the highest beings in heaven under God, they long to see gospel realities. They long to catch a glimpse of the gospel realities you and I are privileged to participate in. That you and I are privileged to partake of day in and day out as followers of Jesus. The angels are longing to see what all that means for us. They are longing to see what God will do in us and through us and for us. There's a passionate obsession. And if they are passionately obsessed with seeing gospel, gospel realities, you and I should be passionately obsessed with growing in gospel realities. You see, the angels are like kids at Disneyland who are standing on their tiptoes, peering over the crowd, longing to catch a glimpse of Mickey Mouse while you and I actually have the privilege of sitting with him on the float and journeying through the parade alongside of him. Angels long to see the gospel realities you and I are privileged to participate in and to partake of. Christian, are you aware of the wonder of your own salvation? Are you aware of the wonder of, of how God has saved you and rescued you and given you new life? If you are not yet a Christian, but maybe you've been earshot, in earshot of the gospel more than once, are you aware of the wonders that await you in Christ? Wonders that I pray will, you will get a glimpse of in this moment and that will draw you to put your faith in Jesus so that you can participate in and partake of gospel realities. Let me, let me identify a few of the wonders of our salvation from this passage. First, there's the wonder of God's initiative. There's the wonder of God's initiative. That is, that which speaks to his grace, what he freely initiates and what he freely does for us. You see this beginning in verse 10, where we read concerning this salvation. And of course, you can't understand that phrase without looking back at all that Peter had just written. And in the previous passage, Peter has been talking about the new birth we've been given through by God's mercy that has brought us into a living hope and has given us an eternal inheritance and, and allows us to engage our present sufferings in a different kind of way. 
The apostle Peter has been outlining that, but I really want you to look at verse one again, because in verse one, there's a, there's a word there that speaks to our identity that I want you to enjoy. In verse one, he refers to Christians. He refers to those who are trusting in the gospel, believing in Jesus. He refers to us as the chosen, meaning that we are those upon whom God has eternally and exquisitely set his love that God has set his affections upon us from before the foundations of the earth. That phrase, the chosen, means that some aspect of our salvation concerns God's initiative, God's first move towards us, where he is loving us, and he is loving us not in response to anything we have said or anything that we have done. He's just loving us. That his love is not dependent upon what you and I do or how well we do it. God demonstrated this, that even though you and I were still yet sinners, God sent Jesus into the world to live and to die and to rise again. He wasn't responding to us. He was coming to rescue us. That's, that's initiative. That's grace. He goes on in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament. And to all the the prophetic authors of the books of the Old Testament, guys like Moses and Isaiah and Amos and Obadiah, the Old Testament chronicles, it tells the story in all sorts of ways of God's initiative, of God's grace, of God's love. God took initiative in creating you and I for himself. He did not create us because he was under obligation to do so. He did not create us because he needed us, because he was lonely or somehow dissatisfied with who he was in the heavens. No, God created us because there was so much love within him that it it was exploding out of him and he wanted to share it. So he created us in love. He took the initiative to be kind to us, to be good to us. So he created a wonderful home for us to inhabit with him. And our ancestors, Adam and Eve, would fellowship with with God in the Garden of Eden, enjoying his presence Until one day they went a different way. One day they decided that what God had set up and what God had intended was no longer good enough for them. So they wanted to experiment with something else. No longer trusting God's word. They disobeyed God and they sinned against him and that wrecked everything. So that all of a sudden Adam and Eve became aware of their shame and they were found naked and afraid Rather than fellowshipping with God, they started to hide from God and they go and they hide behind the trees. But even then, God took the initiative to find them. He took the initiative to seek them out. So he comes to them and he calls them by name and he brings them out of hiding and he looks at them and and sees them in their nakedness. He sees them in their shame and he takes the initiative to cover them in that moment. And he takes the initiative to make a promise to them saying, look, one day I'm going to send the savior and he's going to right all of your wrongs. He's going to defeat all of your enemies. He's going to conquer sin. He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to conquer death. And God taking the initiative, not only to create Adam and Eve, but also to promise that one day he's going to right all the wrongs that they have all the wrongs that they have committed in the world. 
But then he proceeds. And as you move through the Old Testament, God continues to take initiative. He took initiative with Noah. He took initiative with Abraham and with Moses and with the people of Israel. He took the initiative to establish a covenant relationship with his people. He took the initiative to be kind to them and to make promises to them. And ultimately, he took the initiative to send Jesus into the world in fulfillment of all of his promises to satisfy all that the Old Testament anticipates in a Messiah, in a Savior, as we think about how God is making all things right. For Jesus came and he lived the life that you and I could not live because we are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. Jesus then went to the cross and he died the death that you and I deserved because we are culpable for all that is wrong in the world. But yet Jesus did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. This he did despite the fact that we are sinners, despite the fact that we are culpable. This he did because he loves us. And he took the initiative not only to create us, he took the initiative to redeem us. This is grace. This is the work of God's free favor. This is the work of God's unmerited kindness. Now, most people, when you talk about salvation, when you talk about making things right, most people in the world believe that the initiative and the onus for salvation rests upon their shoulders. And they reason that if God is going to save them or if they're going to attain any type of salvation, then it is dependent upon what they do and how well they do it. They say, okay, well, God will save me if I treat other people well. God will save me if I am a good mom or a good husband. God will save me if I do this right or that right. God will save me if I seek justice or steward the earth well. God will save me if I get on board with this cause or this movement or whatever the case may be. And many people think that the onus of salvation, the initiative of being redeemed rests upon them, that good works and good deeds are the lever that we must pull in order for God's love to drop into our lives. But when we think about God's initiative and we think about the nature of his grace, nothing is further from the truth. Because God's love, his grace, his salvation doesn't come to us in response to anything that we have done. His love, his grace, his salvation comes to us freely from the overflow of his eternal and exquisite love for us. It's a remarkable thing to consider the initiative that God takes in redeeming us and rescuing us. Now, there's a common teaching in just about every religion that exists in the world that is and every secular philosophy that operates in the world around us that where everyone is in general agreement that human beings aren't right, that we are not living in harmony with whatever their idea is of ultimate reality. And everyone's aware of that. And because everyone's aware of that, different people, secular philosophies, world religions propose their own solutions to that. And those solutions are varied. There are as many different solutions as there are religions and philosophies. But the one thing that unites them, the one common denominator that, ex that exists within them is that the initiative or the onus or the responsibility falls upon human beings, that it is up to us to attain salvation. It is up to us to make things right. 
But there is no wonder in that. And when you think about what angels long to see, that's not what they are longing to see. Angels are not longing to see human beings trying but failing over and over and over again to save themselves. They are not longing to see that because that would only depress them. It would not captivate them. That would only leave them sad and frustrated. It would not leave them glad and excited. What they are longing to see isn't the work that you and I do to save ourselves. They are longing to see the work God has done to save us and to rescue us. They are longing to see the initiative God has taken in our lives and what he has worked out for us. They are longing to see the gospel realities that do not depend upon you and they do not depend upon me, but that depend entirely upon Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. This is further rounded out in verse 12, where Peter refers to the gospel as an announcement, that the gospel is a report, that at its core, the gospel is not a collection of wise sayings. It is not a collection of moral laws or commands. The gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration of what God has accomplished through the sufferings and the glories of his son. It is a declaration of what Jesus has done is not a call to what you and I must do. And so the angels are longing to see the difference that God's eternal initiative that this graceful initiative makes in our lives. They're standing on their tiptoes eager to see God's initiative change things. And that brings us to the second aspect of of salvation that we want to be in awe of, the second wonder of our salvation. And it concerns the wonder of God's invasion. That our salvation concerns not only God's initiative in coming to us and doing something for us, but our salvation concerns God coming to us and dwelling within us. It is a type of invasion where God comes in through his spirit to take over our lives. That our maker would fill us up with his own presence in order to make us again. Peter alluded to this in verse three when he said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth. And this new birth comes as a work of the Holy Spirit. It comes because the Holy Spirit has invaded our lives. And as the Holy Spirit invades our lives, he intends to take over. He intends to change every aspect of who We are for his glory. He intends to make us our true selves in Christ. Now, recently I was reminded of a documentary that was released on the 50th anniversary of of the Allied invasion of Normandy. That moment that began the historic World War II battle that uh, was launched to set the continent of Europe free from Nazi control and from Nazi occupation. And in this documentary, different uh, TV networks of interviews of aging veterans were, were given. And there were two interviews given back to back that stood in contrast with each other. One interview was of an was aging veteran who at that time was a Marine, a Marine who landed on Omaha Beach. And he recalled the horrors around him that sounded a lot like the scenes 
you and I have seen depicted in movies like Saving Private Ryan, and he's describing those types of real scenes and real horrors. And there came a moment as he was standing on the beach when he thought to himself, we are going to lose. But in the very next interview, it was with a reconnaissance pilot who had flown over the whole battle area. And this reconnaissance pilot saw the scene from a different perspective. This reconnaissance pilot saw things from on high. And as he looked down, yes, he saw the carnage on the beaches and the hills. But he also witnessed the successes of the Marines, the penetration of the paratroopers. He saw the effectiveness of the air raids. And, and as he looked out upon the scene and he saw everything put before him, he said to himself, we're going to win. We're going to win. Two different responses to the same event, all a matter of where you are located and where you are looking at what's happening. Well, when the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit invades our lives, he intends to conquer and to control every area of our lives. He aims to bring us into full conformity with the holiness of God and the beauty of Jesus. And so as he invades our lives, he goes to war against the sin within us. He goes to war to take back territory that the enemy has claimed for himself in our thinking and in our affections. He goes to war against all of that. And at time in the journey, as the Holy Spirit is invading, we, we put up resistance and our flesh fights back. And at times we might think because we are so close to ourselves and we are so on the ground in the midst of the battle, we may think to ourselves, we are going to lose. And it is in those moments we need to be reminded of what the angels are longing to see for they are looking from a different perspective. They are looking at our lives from on high. And when they look upon our lives, they see a different scene. They see a much bigger story and they are bearing witness to the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work within us. And they are saying to themselves, they're going to win. They're going to win. They are captivated by the wonder of God's invading presence in our lives, longing to see how the Holy Spirit is conforming us more into the image of the one who lived and died and rose again. Angels long to see the beauty of Christ's likeness increasing within us. This Christ likeness that's going to fill out the new heavens and the new earth when all is said and done. And that brings me to the third dynamic of salvation in this text. The third wonder There's the wonder of God's initiative referring to his grace. There's the wonder of God's invasion referring to his spirit. But now I want us to consider the wonder of God's instructions concerning his word. Now, follow me in this. Look at verse 11. Referring to the prophets in verse 11, Peter writes, they inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And so the apostle is referring to God's instructions that were laid out in the Old Testament. Instructions that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that was working within the prophets and all that they were writing down. And so he's affirming that, referring to that. But then look at verse 12. Because in verse 12, there's an allusion to the apostles, apostles like Peter and Paul and James and John, an allusion to their works and to their writings. Listen to what it says. 
Verse 12, it says, these things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so taken together, you have in this moment an allusion or reference to God's instructions that have come to us through the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament and the writings of the apostles that will make out the new. The inspired writings of the prophets and the apostles that would make up the Bible. And I want you to think about the wonder of God's instructions, the wonder of God's word. Now, the nature of the Bible is akin to the nature of Jesus himself. Jesus, when he entered the world, he did so full as being fully human and fully God all at the same time. Fully human, fully divine. When you think about the nature of the scriptures, there's a sense in which the nature of the Bible is akin to Jesus, that the Bible itself is a fully divine book and a fully human book. It is a book that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through the work of human authors, prophets, and apostles. It is both full, it is fully divine and fully human. It is a book that is written by humans, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what that means is, is that whatever David wrote in Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit inspired that what's been written in that passage is what God is speaking right now because God's word is living and active. God speaks through what has been written. And the same can be said of what Moses wrote and Isaiah wrote and all the other prophets. And when you move into the New Testament, we have the apostles who also write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bringing God's instructions to the church. And one of the most wonderful aspects of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit used a variety of human authors to write it. And each of them make a contribution that tells a unified story of redemption, a story of God's initiative, a story of God's invasion, a story that instructs us on the sufferings and the glories of Jesus. And he used each of the authors according to the personality that he himself wired within them. So that when the Spirit spoke through Isaiah, it sounded like Isaiah. When the Spirit spoke through Jeremiah, it sounded like Jeremiah. When the Spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul, it sounded like the Apostle Paul. When the Spirit spoke through Luke, it sounded like Luke. When the Spirit spoke through Peter, it sounded like Peter. But the reverse is true as well. When Peter spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit, it sounds like the Spirit. When Paul speaks under the inspiration of the Spirit, it sounds like the Spirit. What Isaiah wrote sounds like the Spirit. What Moses wrote sounds like the Spirit. The Bible is fully human and fully divine. And this is true for everything written in the Old Testament. As the prophets spoke, according to verse 11, the prophets spoke um, according to the spirit of Christ that was working within them. And the same can be said of all the writings of the apostles that make out the news. So here's what this means for us. This means that it is never okay for a pastor, no matter how big or small his or her church may be, or a professor, no matter how many 
no matter how many degrees cover his or her walls, it is never okay for a pastor or a professor or any ordinary disciple or human being to try and put a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. That we should never try to unhitch the old from the new. We should never try to put a wedge in the Bible, pitting the Bible against itself, saying things like, well, I'm all about the gospels, but I'm not about what the apostle Paul wrote. No, the same spirit who inspired the gospels inspired Paul. You and I, no one on this planet is in a position to pit the Bible against itself or to put a wedge between the Old Testament and the New, between the gospels and the epistles, between any aspect of the scriptures. The same Holy Spirit worked within each prophet and each apostle to give us God's instructions. Now, God's instructions in both the Old and New Testaments concern what verse 11 refers to as the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. I want you to underline that phrase because that, my friends, contains the telos or the goal of the Bible in a nutshell. That the Bible is God's word written through prophets and apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit to testify to the sufferings and the glories of Jesus. In other words, the Bible is about the gospel. The Bible is about all that Jesus would accomplish for his people. That the Bible isn't about me and it's not about you, though it involves me and concerns me, it, it isn't about me. The Bible is about Jesus, his sufferings and his glory. The prophets and the apostles all affirm this. They all contribute to his story in unique, uniquely significant ways. Jesus would teach this in Luke chapter 24. In a moment when Jesus appears to two disciples who were discouraged and disoriented because all their hopes were dashed with the death of Jesus. And they did not have a category in their minds for a suffering Messiah. So when Christ died on the cross, their hope died too. And although they read the Old Testament, they did not understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament rightly understood would have prepared them for a suffering Messiah whose sufferings would give way to glory. But these disciples were a lot like most people in the world today. When we think about salvation, we don't think about it coming through suffering. We only think about it coming through glory and might and power. But God instructs us in his word saying, look, there's no such thing as a salvation that comes entirely by way of glory. He says, no, salvation only comes through the suffering of Jesus, a suffering that would give way and lead to incredible and glory, that there is no crown apart from the cross for the Savior. And so these disciples are discouraged. They're disoriented. And Jesus appears to them. And listen to what he says. He says, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He began to show how it all testified to his suffering and glory. Soon after that, he would appear to all of his disciples and he would say this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, he said the Old Testament 
was pregnant with gospel realities. And the gospel was first conceived in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when God said, look, the savior is coming and he will crush the head of the serpent. And so the gospel is conceived there. Then it is carried throughout the rest of the old Testament. And as time rolls on, the shape and the contours of the gospel begin to grow. It begins to take, take shape and its evidence begins to appear much like a baby that has been conceived and is growing in the womb of a mother over time, that baby begins to grow and its shape and its contours become evident to everyone who is looking in until eventually that mother gives birth. Well, the, the Bible, the gospel would be birthed in the new Testament when Jesus would come and he would live and die and rise again. And he would fulfill all the anticipations of the old Testament, all the expectations and longings of the old Testament saying the gospel was pregnant with the gospel and with the coming of Jesus, the gospel was was birthed into the world. You see together, both the old and new testaments are needed in order for you and I to plumb the wonderful depths of the sufferings and the glories of Christ. We need the whole Bible to fully cultivate and to call out the wonder that angels long to see. This is why you and I are people of the book. We study the Bible. We preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. We announce the gospel to the city of Seattle and to the world around us because these are the gospel realities we've been swept up into. These gospel realities that we benefit from and partake participate in and partake of these gospel realities that angels long to see. And as they are passionately obsessed with seeing it, you and I should be passionately obsessed with tasting the beauty of the gospel over and over and over again. And this means a few things for us. It means, yes, what I mentioned a moment ago, that we reject any attempt to pit the Bible against itself, any attempt to place a wedge between the old and the new, any attempt to put a wedge between the gospels and the epistles, we reject all of that. But we also reject any burdensome notion that Jesus is simply a wise teacher or a moral guide, that Jesus is simply a social justice warrior to the neglect of the fact that he is a substitutionary savior. When it comes to the gospel, understand that the teachings of Jesus do not constitute the gospel. Select sayings of the Bible do not constitute the gospel. Take, for example, Micah 6.8, a verse that is popular to many right now. And, and it is a great word from God that tells us that we should love mercy and act justly and walk humbly with our God. And as incredible of as incredible as that verse is, as it speaks to the life that we are to live in light of the gospel, understand that Micah 6, 8 is not the gospel. Words of the Bible do not constitute the gospel. Not even the teaching of Jesus constitutes the gospel. In fact, if we only have words, if we only have Micah 6, 8, if we only have the teachings of Jesus, understand that those words will crush us. Those words will burden us. 
Those words carry with them a standard of righteousness and holiness and love that you and I are too fractured, fallen, and frail to fulfill. And so we need not simply words of the Bible. We need not simply words Jesus has spoken. What we need is the work of Jesus. Because the gospel concerns what happened to Jesus when he was crucified, risen, and ascended, taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God where he reigns and rules over all things, awaiting the day when he returns, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. Words will crush us. It is the works of Jesus that save us. And so when you're reading the Bible and you come upon a standard that is too big for you, one that you have not been able to fulfill, what do you do in that moment as you're reading that in the scriptures? Well, you run to Jesus and you recognize that he carried that command for you, that Jesus is the one who loved mercy, who acted justly, who walked humbly with his father. This is why Jesus could say in the gospels, I only do what I see my father doing. This is why Jesus enjoyed communion with his father in every moment of every day. He walked with God. He walked humbly with God. He fulfilled Micah 6, 8 perfectly, knowing that you and I, we don't stand a chance to do, to do so. And so what we do is we read Micah 6, 8, and we're like, oh man, I haven't been loving mercy. I haven't been acting justly. I haven't been walking humbly with God. What do I do in response to this? Well, I run to the work of Jesus. I look to the death and resurrection of Jesus, his sufferings and his glories, and I allow gospel realities to melt my heart and to change my life in cooperation with the Holy Spirit's invasion. And then I renew, I find myself being renewed to carry out the spirit of Micah 6, 8 so I can go forth from a posture of confession and dependence upon the work of Jesus. And I can go from there to love mercy and to act justly and to walk humbly with my God. And so we think about these dynamics. We think about the work of Jesus and not just the words of the Bible when we think about the gospel. And that brings me to the final dynamic I want to share with you. I believe there's a particular aspect of the gospel that the angels are longing to see stemming from this passage. And it concerns how this passage instructs us. Keep in mind that Peter is writing to hurting Christians. He's writing to suffering saints. And because of their suffering, many of them are being tempted to bail out on the faith. And so Peter wants to encourage them to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's his reason for writing according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And he's saying, look, I know you're suffering, but you shouldn't be surprised because the Savior suffered too. And he says, I know you're worried about your sufferings defeating you and conquering you, but understand that the suffering of Jesus did not defeat him. The suffering of Jesus served his future glory. And so as readers of this letter who are having a hard time in life in a fallen world, we do not suffer in a way that is caught off guard or is surprised by hardship and difficulty. We say, no, Jesus suffered too. And when we suffer, we do not resolve ourselves to be defeated because suffering didn't defeat Jesus and suffering will not defeat you and it will not defeat me either. 
In fact, it is our sufferings that give way to future glory. And so when it comes to the angels and what they are longing to see, I believe they are longing to see how God will flip the script on our suffering and bring beauty from the ashes of our lives. They are longing to see glory grow through the suffering of God's people. And so you think about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. This is what the Bible teaches. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And Peter would extend that truth in his letter towards the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Yes, you are suffering right now, but you will not suffer forever. Yes, you are suffering right now, but your sufferings will not be in vain because for those who are in Christ, our suffering will give way to glory just as resurrection gave way or the crucifixion of Jesus gave way to the resurrection of Jesus. That the cross was born by Christ before the crown. And as we follow Jesus through the world that is and root to the world that is to come, we bear a cross before the crown. Our sufferings will give way to future glory. One of the most beautiful wildflowers in Alaska is known as the fireweed. And the fireweed has many uses. Some like to take its, its delicate purple pinkish blossom and use it to make tea with. Others use it to treat cuts or eczema even. And some take its blossoms and, and use it to make flavorful jellies or types of honeys. Well, the reason why that flower is called the fireweed is because it's the first plant to bloom after a fire. And when the smoke clears and the earth cools, these flowers emerge from the blackened earth. And they cover the landscape like a stunning quilt, trading beauty for ashes. And this is what the angels long to see in our lives. They long to see how God is going to bring beauty from our ashes, how God is going to bring glory through the sufferings we experience in this life, just as he did with Jesus. Therefore, we do not give up. We do not bail on our faith. No, we lean in. We press into these gospel realities, trusting that though we suffer for a little while, we do not suffer in vain. That God is collecting our tears and one day he's going to use those and transform them into an eternal weight of glory that, that I fail to be able to describe adequately. You think about Romans chapter eight, Paul says, I, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us for the creation that is all of creation, including angels. Get this for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for the children of God to be revealed. That all of creation is longing to catch a glimpse of what God's going to do to bring beauty from ashes, to bring glory through the sufferings of life in a fallen world, all of which is made possible, all of which is guaranteed because of what Christ has accomplished for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, you taking the initiative in our lives, initiating all that is good in us, initiating all that is good for us. We thank you for that. We thank you, God, for invading our lives and giving us your spirit who is at work within us even now to conform us more into the image of Christ. And God, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us concerning the sufferings and the glories of the Savior and how your word instructs us on how the sufferings and the glories of Jesus give shape to the lives that we are to live in the here and now. And so God, would you continue to grow us as your people, make us people of the book and give us grace to live in light of the world that is to come so that we might make the most of any moment that we have in the here and now. God, we love you and we praise you all in Jesus name. Amen.